The reading for this morning is from the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verse 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, you sent John the Baptist so many years ago to testify to the light, to point to you, Jesus, and say, He's the one. He's the Christ. He's the Lamb of God. And the purpose of his life was to reveal the reality of your being and who you are. And I pray that you would grant this morning that he would fulfill his purpose even in our midst. I pray that as we consider briefly the testimony of John the Baptist, I pray that you would open our eyes to the glory of who you are, Father. Please, God, show us your glory and give us hearts to adore you, Father. Give us hearts to love you, to give all of ourselves to you. Give us hearts that are willing to bow before you and do your will. Father, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for what you will do now in the great and gracious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so John starts his Gospel out by trying to lift our eyes up to get just even a glimpse of who Jesus Christ really actually is. 
He wants us to see that Christ is great and mighty and awesome beyond our ability to imagine. He's about to write about some of the details of Jesus' life. He's about to tell us stories of what happened when Jesus walked this earth. And he wants us to know that Jesus was not just a man. He was not just another historical figure. He's not just a religious leader. He's God. He's great and He's mighty. And having said that now, he turns his attention in verse 6 toward another John, who we also know as John the Baptist. Before John the Baptist was born, there had not been a prophet in Israel for nearly 400 years since the days of Malachi. That's twice as long as the United States has been in existence. There was relative silence from the throne of God to the people of Israel. It had been a very long time since the people had seen the power of God pouring through a prophet of God and delivering to them the Word of God. But when the time was right, there was a man sent from God and his name was John, who we also know as John the Baptist. Before he was born, his father Zechariah had a vision of an angel and that angel foretold the birth of John and then he spoke these words about the life of John. Just imagine, especially you who are mothers, if you were pregnant and you heard words like these about the son that you were about to have. Here's what the angel said. This comes from Luke. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so, with these words, Elizabeth did conceive and began to gestate the child. And when the time was full, she gave birth to a son. And there was great rejoicing among the people because, as you know, she had been barren for most of her life. And so it was a miracle that she was able even to conceive, much less give birth to so great a prophet as John. And then Luke simply says this in chapter 1, verse 80. He says the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to the people of Israel. So probably what that means when it says that he was in the wilderness until he publicly appeared, it probably means that Zechariah and Elizabeth actually entrusted John into the hands of a religious community out in the deserts of Israel. They're probably called the Essenes. We know for a fact that they lived out in those regions and John was probably raised by them. We don't know for sure. But what is certain we can tell from the text is that God sent him into the wilderness for all of his growing up years so that he would learn how to seek the Lord and hear from the Lord and submit himself to the Lord and speak the word of the Lord. And when the time was right, he was out in the desert. I don't know what he was doing that day, but the word of the Lord came upon him and God sent him into the whole region of the Jordan and he began to preach everywhere a a message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And as John preached to the people, the power of God came upon him. It poured through him and it touched many, many lives. He very quickly gained a great name for himself in Israel. And even the the leaders of Israel took note of this man. And they began to ask, who is this guy? 
Where did He come from? Where did this power come from? It had been 400 years, beloved, since the people of Israel had seen someone with this kind of power in their midst. A very long time beyond anyone's memory. And now here is this great prophet. And they began to ask, is this the Christ? Is this the promised Messiah? Is this the one who's going to come now and deliver the people of Israel from their oppression? The Apostle John in the Gospel of John, in verse 6 and following, tells us that John the Baptist was not the Messiah, but that he was a witness sent from God to bear witness to the light. He himself was not that light, but he came to bear witness to the light. God sent him in the world to raise him up as a prophet in the eyes of the people, to get great credibility in the eyes of the people. So that when Jesus walked on the scene, John could take all of his credibility and point to Christ and say, He's the one. He is the Christ. He is the light. He is the life. John was sent by God as a human to bear witness to Him who became a human but was in fact God. And so, when the leaders of Israel asked Him, Are you the Christ? It says in chapter 1, verse 20. Yeah, in verse 20, he did not hesitate to say, no, I am not the Christ. I am not him. That is not me. And so then they ask in verse 21, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And I think what they mean was, are you a reincarnation of the prophet Elijah? Who are you? He said, no, I'm not him. So they ask, are you the prophet? And I think what they mean there is Moses had written in Deuteronomy 18.15 that after him would come another prophet like him who would raise up and be great in Israel. And you have to understand, Moses is, except for Jesus, the greatest prophet in all the history of Israel. Moses wrote in his own works that another prophet will come. God will raise him up from among your own people. Listen to him. Fear him. Follow him. So they're asking John, are you that man? Are you that prophet of which Moses prophesied? And he said, no, I'm not that man. Well, John, then who are you? You obviously have great power from God. It's obvious that you're not just a fleshly, charismatic man. The Spirit of God is upon you and pouring power through you. Who are you, John? And his testimony was clear. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He quoted there from Isaiah 40. So if you'll turn with me, to Isaiah 40, verse 3. I want to just read with you a few verses. Help us understand maybe in a little bit more fullness what the point of John's life is. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level. The rough places a plain. And here's the key to me. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the calling upon John's life his own sense of himself and why God had sent him into the world was to awaken the hearts of the people that they might recognize and receive the Lord of glory when he revealed his glory to the people of Israel. And the Apostle John writes, 
that the Word, Jesus Christ, the life, the light, became flesh and dwelt among us or pitched His tent among us, tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The day after John had this interaction with the leaders of Israel about his identity, he said this in verse 29. It says, He saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes one who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. So in other words, the whole reason John came and began baptizing people and preaching with such power was to point to Christ, to baptize Christ and say, this is the one, this is the one. And having done that, John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him. In other words, I didn't grow up with this guy. I didn't recognize Him. I knew nothing about Him. Our families weren't interacting with each other. We knew nothing about each other. He wasn't a buddy of mine. I did not know Him. But He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, God spoke to me in prayer and told me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Beloved, after almost 400 years of relative silence, God breaks that silence and sends a prophet into the life of Israel. And He makes that prophet great so that people revered Him and they listened to the words that He said. And when Jesus came onto the scene, He caused that prophet to point to Him and say, that's the one. He's the Christ. He is the Messiah. And here are the particular words that He spoke about Him. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the heart of John's testimony that day. Behold the Lamb of God. 400 years of silence and this sentence comes into the world. Behold the Lamb of God. That's amazing. Jesus Christ is truly great beyond imagination, beloved. That's John's point in verses 1-5. through He is the Creator of all things. In Him is all life. He doesn't give us life. He is life. It's not something He possesses. It's something that is Him. And that life is the light of people. Light shines into darkness. Darkness does not overcome it. Jesus Christ is immensely powerful beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. And yet this great and mighty God is also incomprehensibly humble. And He emptied Himself and took on flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And He was not afraid to be called a Lamb. The Lamb of God. The Word of God through whom all things in heaven on earth were created and by whom even this moment everything is sustained is also the Lamb of God. The Word is the Lamb. He is high and He is humble. He is great and He is gracious. He is mighty and He is merciful. 
He's powerful and He is patient. He's strong and He is submissive. He is the Word of God and He is the humble, humble Lamb of God. This is at the heart of the display of the glory of God in the person of Jesus. So high and so humble. And I pray that we will see something of that glory today and receive it. As I was preparing the message for today, I sensed the Lord pressing on me pretty strongly to study this word lamb, to look at it in the Bible, to see how it's been used, to watch the progression from Genesis through Revelation and how it comes to have particular meaning in Jesus Christ. And so I spent hours doing that yesterday. And and the Lord just showed me so many things, which is mind-blowing to me. And at the same time, my wife was down in the basement having a, a quiet time, and the Lord was showing her things that were so much in line with what He was doing in me. It was a glorious day yesterday. And I pray that, that, that the Lord would now allow me to share with you something of what He shared with me. And my prayer is that you, as He did with me, that He would open our eyes to see the glory of what it means, that He's the Word of God and the Lamb of God, very high, very humble, and glorious as can be glorious as can be. So I want to take us to three places in the Old Testament. Then I want to come back to the New Testament and mainly spend time in another of John's writings, namely Revelation, and just show you and and rejoice with you in Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. So please, let's turn to Genesis 22. We'll begin there. I'm not going to read any of this text, but it'd be good to have the Bible open to that so you can follow the story. For many, many years, Abraham and Sarah had been longing for a son, and you know that God had promised to give them a son when the time was right. But even though He promised and His promise was sure, the time was going on and on and on, year after year, decades had passed, no son. But finally, by the grace, the power, the wisdom of God, when the time was full, the son was born. And then only 14 years later, God asked Abraham to do something that is absolutely unthinkable to me. I cannot imagine receiving a commandment like this from God. He commanded Abraham to take his most precious son and to bring him up on the mountain of sacrifice, to lay him on an altar, and to sacrifice that son. This would be an impossible enough command to obey, just as it is. But since they had waited so long for this child of promise, since he was so precious to them, since he was the only son of Abraham and Sarah as a couple, he was immensely precious to them. And this command must have been excruciating for Abraham. Abraham, take your son and sacrifice him. But Abraham had come to the place in his life where he no longer questioned God. He simply trusted, submitted, and obeyed. And so, he gathered all the necessary things. He took his son, he took a couple of servants, and they set out for the land of Moriah to a mountain where God would show them. At some point, God must have pointed out the mountain because Abraham asks his servants to stay behind. He takes Isaac, and he he takes the wood of the sacrifice, and he puts it on Isaac's back. He puts it on Isaac's back. And he asks Isaac to carry that wood all the way up to the mountain of sacrifice. What an amazing metaphor for Christ, given so many thousands of years before Christ. Amazing. As they're walking toward the mountain, Isaac starts to kind of get a clue, and he says, Dad, I don't understand. I see the wood. I see the fire for the, for the altar. But I don't see the, the lamb. What are we going to do about the lamb? And Abraham simply says, says to him, Son, 
God will provide for himself a lamb for sacrifice. God will provide. And with that, they went to the top of the mountain. They built the altar. They placed all the wood. They did all of that. And then, to Isaac's great surprise, Abraham seizes him and binds him and puts him on the altar. He takes the knife. He lifts it up. He's ready to fully follow through in obedience to God. And just at that moment, an angel from heaven speaks to him and says, Abraham, Abraham, stop what you're doing. Do not sacrifice Isaac. Do not follow through on the deed. The purposes of the Lord have been accomplished. Your heart has been tested. And Abraham didn't know this. But the metaphor is now full. The metaphor is now full. You don't need to follow through. You have shown a father willing to sacrifice his son in obedience to God. You've shown the metaphor. It's over. Do not kill him. Right at that moment, he lifts his eyes up and caught in the thickets, caught in the bushes, is a ram there. God did provide. So they went and grabbed the ram, they sacrificed him, and they move on with their lives. Now, beloved, what's all that about? In other parts of the Bible, God expressly forbids the sacrifice of children in no uncertain terms. With very grave consequences, He says, do not be like the heathen who sacrificed their children to their gods. Do not do this. Do not do it. So why in the world would a God who so strongly forbids something also command that thing in this one instance? And the only answer that I think is there is that it was a metaphor for what God would do in sending His own Son that one day He would provide a lamb for Himself as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins so that whoever believed would no longer perish but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ is the lamb that was to be on that altar that day. Genesis 22 is screaming to us, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is a metaphor for Christ. With that, please flip to Numbers 29 now. Numbers 29, verses 7 through 11. Again, I'm not going to read this text, but I'd like just for you to have it open so you can look there. This is a a passage, a brief one about the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement in the life of Israel was an annual event. It happened only once every year. And it was a day in which uh, atonement for sins was made. There were sacrifices happening all the time in the life of Israel. And we'll see in the next year as we go through the Pentateuch, we'll see why the Day of Atonement was a special set-apart day. But for now, the bottom line is that once a year, they made special sacrifices to forgive the sins of the people of Israel. And on that day, three specific sacrifices had to happen. Number one was a bull. Number one, number two was a ram, and number three were seven lambs. So one bull, one ram, and seven lambs had to be sacrificed in certain ways at certain times. And then having done that, God would receive the blood of those innocent animals and forgive the sins of the people of Israel. Beloved, our sin is more serious than we think it is. It's so serious that without the shedding of innocent blood, there will be no forgiveness for us. None. And so God prescribed that these sacrifices be made in certain ways because His heart was to atone for our sins and restore the relationship to us. And Christ is the fulfillment of all that. When Christ died on the cross, it was the ultimate day of atonement. It was the day of atonement to end all days of atonement. Do you know that after the time of Jesus, there has never again been blood sacrifice in Israel? Ever again. The whole sacrificial system was wiped out in 70 AD and it's never been rebuilt. Why? Because there was a once for all sacrifice. When He came to be the Day of Atonement for us, 
and in other places, the New Testament makes it very clear. He is the fulfillment of this day. There was no more need for that day. He is the day, capital D, of atonement for us. So having said that, there's three sacrifices, right? A bull, a ram, seven lambs. Why is Jesus identified with the lamb? Why, would, why wouldn't He be identified with the bull? Wouldn't that make more sense in some ways? Bulls are big animals, strong animals, powerful animals. Jesus Christ is massive and strong and powerful. Wouldn't it make sense to call Him the bull of God rather than the lamb of God? A lamb is a weak animal. It's, it's vulnerable. It's helpless. It's hopeless without outside help. Why would He be identified as a lamb? And I would simply say because He's humble. He, he submitted Himself before the Father and said, Father, You do anything You want to do in my life, even if it's to stick me on an altar on the top of a mountain and kill me. I submit Myself to You. Father, I will do anything You ask Me to do. Beloved, Your God who created the heavens and the earth is unbelievably humble. Humble. That's why He's called the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. So high and yet so humble. Turn with me now to Isaiah 52. This passage is so powerful. As I read it, I just thought, you know, there's nothing else to do here but just to read this text. So I want to read with you Isaiah 52:13 through the whole chapter of 53. It's a lot to read, but I trust that the Lord will open our eyes as we read, as we consider Jesus Christ as the Word of God, great and mighty, and the Lamb of God, humble and submissive. Here's what Isaiah writes, 52:13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand." Who has believed what He has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We didn't think much of him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought peace, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter 
Like a sheep that before its shivers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Beloved, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, so high, so mighty, so exalted, and yet so humble, so merciful, so submissive, so patient, so gracious, so kind, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's turn our attention now to the New Testament. John is the only gospel writer. I was a little surprised by this. He's the only one that identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. And that really becomes a theme, not only in his gospel, but also throughout the book of Revelation. It's a very important thing for John that we see Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he tells his life, he tells of his suffering, he tells of his death, he tells of his resurrection with this metaphor of Jesus as the Lamb of God in mind all throughout the gospel. The next time you read the gospel of John, think about this constantly. Jesus, the Lamb of God, you'll see what I mean. Then in Revelation, he picks this back up in a very powerful way. He now pictures again Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, but now Jesus becomes a very unusual Lamb. Very unusual. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, John sees a Lamb standing by the throne of God. Now, nobody stands by the throne of God. Nobody sits or or does anything by the throne of God like that. He's standing by the throne of God, a lamb who looked as though it had been slain. This lamb had seven horns, and on it were seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the world. I spent some time, actually over the last few weeks, trying to figure out what this means, the seven spirits of God. And I really don't know what it means right now. I'm sure the Lord will give me insight someday. But what I do know for sure is that this Lamb of God who's standing by the throne of God has control of the spirits of God. What I do know is that this Lamb has so much power that He has power over all power that belongs to God. This is a Lamb with tremendous power. And beloved, let me ask you, who thinks of a Lamb that way? Who envisions a powerful lamb? Do you know any sports teams who have as their mascot the fierce and mighty lamb? Nobody pictures a lamb being powerful. If you think about it, it makes you giggle. It's it's meant to make your mind go, what? What? 
A powerful lamb. It's amazing. It's amazing. So high and yet so humble that even in heaven, Jesus Christ is pictured as a lamb. He retains His humility. It was not for a moment in time, beloved. This is the depth of the heart of Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God. He is the Lamb of God. He is high and He is humble. And so this Lamb plays the dominant role in the book of Revelation. Read it. You'll see. He is the dominant player in the book of Revelation. And He's in total control. And this Lamb receives the worship that belongs to God alone. Chapter 15, verse 2 through 4. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are you, O God is your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So, beloved, this is a very, very unusual Lamb who has all the power that belongs to God and all the praise that belongs to God who is so humble and so vulnerable and so weak that He let Himself be sacrificed by His Father on a mountain, but now He's high and exalted and stands where the throne of God is, the throne that rules the universe. This is a very strange and unusual lamb. When I came to this next text, I cried almost immediately because I was so moved to see the next movement of the identification of this Lamb. And the the thing that moved me so much is that this next text has to do with us. We should take this personally. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. It sounded like the roar of many waters and like the sounds of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, These are the true words of God. Powerful. Beloved, Jesus Christ is a sacrificial Lamb. He's a reigning Lamb who rules all over things. Rules over all things. And He humbly spilled His own blood that sinful people like us might be formed into His image and become one body together. And that together we might be formed into His very bride. This Lamb so humble and yet so high and so powerful is looking forward to getting married one day and His wife will be us. This Lamb who is so great and so gracious so strong and so submissive will be the husband of the church. 
the destiny of the church of Jesus Christ and of each of us as people of Jesus Christ is to be married to Him in holy matrimony forever and ever who took away the sins of the world, who is so high and yet is so humble. And John writes of that day, this is our future. It's like you're looking through a time machine and seeing your future if you believe in Christ. Revelation 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That word there means pitched his tent. It means a tabernacle. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. He will tabernacle with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And then please look down to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city. Why? For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth, all the great and powerful and mighty people, will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Beloved, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's mighty beyond our imagination. He is humble beyond our imagination. He became the atonement for sins that made a way for us to be reconciled to God so that we who believe will no longer perish but have everlasting life and He is now betrothed to us as husband to wife and one day we will be married with Him and we will embrace Him and we will live with Him. We will worship Him forever and ever and ever from the inside out, if you will. In other words, we won't go to a building to worship God. We will be in Christ and from Him, through Him, to Him will be all of our praise, all of our worship forever and ever and ever. I don't know if even John the Baptist could grasp what he meant when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Our God is amazingly glorious. And He revealed Himself in Christ and His glory through this juxtaposition of great might and great mercy, great highness and great humility, great strength and great submission. So strong, so submissive, so high, so humble. What an amazing God we serve. Amen? What a, what a mighty God we serve and what a humble God we serve. Just breathtaking to me, beloved. I just don't know other examples in my life where I look and see people who have so much power and are so humble. I don't see examples. And I am just amazed at Jesus. I just love Him. He's, he's amazing to me. It's just, uh, I admire Him. I respect Him. 
I, I just can't take it in. Such power, such humility. So what I've been trying to do today is just lay out a path for meditation for us. I gave you in your bulletins all the scriptures we went over so you could go back later and look at them. And I just want to invite you into the glory of this meditation with me. Just take some time over the coming weeks. Read these texts. Ask God to open your eyes to see the beauty of who He is. And as you see, ask Him, Father, please shape me into Your image. Make me like You. Give me Your power and give me Your humility for the glory of Your name. Lord, You alone are worthy to receive our thanks and praise. And I pray that You would capture our hearts with a vision of who You are and give us the desire to worship You, Father, all the days of our lives. Please, Father, now as we sing to You, continue to reveal Yourself. Continue to speak to us. Continue to inspire our hearts and our lives towards You now. In Jesus' name I pray.